Well, hi, this is uh, Shannon DeRoche Rosa, and Not I'd like to talk radio. And there we go. <laughs> <laughs> hi, this is Shannon DeRoche Rosa, and I'd like to welcome everybody to the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism Cross Disability Autism Solidarity Talk on the Coffee Clash's Special Needs Radio. And before I start, um, I'd like to just let you know that Dynavox Meyer Johnson is the Coffee Clatch's advertiser for Autism Awareness Month. And Meyer Johnson, your special education super source, is celebrating Autism Awareness Month by giving away a new iPad with nine PCS apps, a copy of Boardmaker Studio, and several other prizes. You can enter to win at MeyerJohnson.com. That's Meyer-Johnson.com. So, um, again, I'm Shannon DeRoche-Rosa. I'm the senior uh, editor and uh, managing editor of the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism, one of a team of five. Uh, our four, our, a lot of our other editors are on tonight, and our other editor, Liz Beats, is live tweeting this, so you can go to at Thinking Autism on Twitter, or you can go to the hashtag SNTCK and follow us there. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about Thinking Person's Guide to Autism is a book and blog project that is essentially the resource we wish we'd had when autism first became a part of our life. It's a one-stop source for carefully curated, evidence-based information from autism parents, autistics, and autism professionals. And the goal of the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism is to help you fast-forward past society's rampant autism fabrications and negativity by providing clear, thoughtfully presented, balanced, and referenced information. And so what we want to talk about tonight is along with that theme in that um, there's occasionally um, perceived animosity between people of different abilities on the autism spectrum. So we've brought together parents of children of different abilities as well as self-advocates to talk about this topic in a uh, kind of a solidarity environment. So... And at this point, I'm going to hand it over to TBA Gen- uh, editor Jennifer Bide Myers, who's going to introduce everyone right after she introduces herself. Hi, everybody. I'm Jennifer Bide Myers. Thanks, Shannon. Um, I'm also a co-founder and editor from Thinking Persons Guide to Autism, and I'm sort of the behind-the-scenes person uh, who runs our nonprofit, which is the umbrella over Thinking Persons Guide to Autism. And I'm a writer and an editor, and I blog at JennyAllis.com. And I have a son, Jack, who has autism and mild cerebral palsy. And I also have a daughter, Katie, who's almost six. And you can find me online all over the place, salon.com and care.com. And I'm a regular contributor at Dandelion. And um, so I want to go ahead and introduce the other people that we have on tonight. We have uh, TPGA editor and contributor, Carol Greenberg. And she's the executive director of New York Special Needs Consulting. She is a special education consultant and lay advocate in the private practice, and she serves the five bureaus (laughs) bureaus of New York City and then beyond that as well. Her unique perspective as an adult with Asperger's syndrome and as the mother of a severely language-delayed autistic child informs all of her work. Thanks for being here, Carol. Hi. And uh, I think we have Emily Willingham. Are you on? Yes. Okay, we have Emily is our science editor, our science writer at... Uh, Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. She is a compulsive biologist and also an autism parent. She's the science editor for Thinking Person's Guide to Autism, and she's also a contributor to our book and blog, and she's also the managing editor at Double X Science. We also have TPGA contributor Krista Dahlstrom, who is a writer and designer in the education and training field, and she's the parent of an 8-year-old autistic hyperlexic boy and has been writing about their family at the blog Hyperlexicon for the past five years. It's a great blog. She's also the executive producer of a new TV show, which is very exciting. It's a TV show for quirky kids and their families called Flummox and Friends, and she's just finished shooting the pilot episode. And we have TPGA editor and contributor Kasiana Sibley. Did I get it right there? Yes, you did. You win a prize. Woohoo! And uh, she has been autistic her whole life and has been doing autistic activism since high school. She blogs at Radical Neurodivergence Speaking, which is at timetolisten.blogspot.com, and she's presented about activism and teaching self-advocacy at a number of conferences over the last 10 years. She contributed to 2004's Ask and Tell, Self-Advocacy and Disclosure for People on the Autism Spectrum, and the editor for that book was um, it's, it was Stephen Shore. And she's also training to be a pediatric neurologist, which I'm very thankful for because we need more of those. 
And then, uh, um, as Shannon mentioned, we also have um, TPA co-found, TPGA co-founder Liz Dietz, who is live tweeting this broadcast. And you can follow along by looking for the hashtag SNTCK. And maybe we'll even have time for some questions towards the end of the show. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Shannon? Um, so I just remembered after listening to everybody's bios, I forgot to introduce myself. Um, I, <laughs> so I'm the parent of an adorable 11-year-old boy, uh, Leo, who is autistic uh, and is uh, generally not terribly conversational but gets his needs across quite diligently and is going to be learning how to do so soon using his iPad, we're hoping. Um, let's see, I've written for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, interviews, and KCD Forum, blah, 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 blah. Um, my personal website where I write about evidence-based approaches and a lot of iPad stuff um, and a whole lot of geekery is at squidalicious.com. And I'm also blogher.com's contributing editor for parenting kids with special needs. So that's me. And what we wanted to do now is just get right into the meat of the thing. And so I wanted to ask Krista a question. Um, you were quoted and interviewed for Amy Harmon's recent New York Times article, The Autism Wars, and you talked about occasionally deferring to autism parents whose children's needs are more obvious than your son's. So can you talk a bit about that dynamic, especially in the context of your son's less obvious and in some cases invisible struggles? Sure. Um, you know, that, that that New York Times story that you talked about included an example of um, a remark that I see only, thankfully, occasionally on, on my blog and maybe more often on other forums, it's sort of arguing that the kind of experience that our family has isn't as valid in the, in the discussion because my, challenge, my son's challenges aren't, and I, I should use air quotes around this, severe enough. Um, I'm really thankful that, that, I, that my community that I'm around most of the time is, is supportive, and, 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 I'm, and I don't um, end up in that discourse, but I know it's out there. And I have to admit I feel pretty ill-equipped to engage with other parents who kind of go there um, to, in, in, a, in, in, in kind of a misery competition. So, so I kind of <laughs> opt out of those conversations, and that's kind of what that, that quote was getting at. Um, but I, I do also struggle sometimes when I'm trying to make the case that my son's needs for support um, for his challenges, that my son needs support for his challenges, even when those challenges aren't obvious to everyone. Um, I, I think that when people see a kid who does, for instance, really well academically, they expect that kid to kind of be at the same level socially and emotionally with our very one-size-fits-all stair-step um, thinking about child development sometimes. And for my son, there are really some some very fundamental things that he's still working on taking turns in a conversation, taking turns in a game, just sitting quietly in a group and listening. And I worry sometimes that, that, that people don't understand that just because he's really good at multiplication tables or he can be really great in a class play, that these things are still really hard for him. And I think um, as, as a parent, the interactions I have, and maybe this is a lot of me projecting into them, where people think, well, he must be able to do these things since he's so good at those at those higher level skills, he's just choosing not to do them. And so it's a matter of discipline rather than a delay or a difference. Um, and so so I struggle with that a little bit. And the, and the other reason I struggle with that, the discourse around, um, well, someone can't be autistic because they're too capable, and again, I'm using air quotes there, is that it's it's defining autism by its deficits alone. And I know that many of the strengths that my son has exist because of his autism. And all of his challenges are going to change a lot as he grows. I think a lot of things will get easier since ability is kind of a fluid thing throughout our lifespan. But regardless, he's always still going to have that autistic identity. Um, and that's why I think that idea of connection and support among people with different abilities is so important because of that essential identity, even though abilities can be fluid. So I sort of feel like despite the discourse that I encounter occasionally um, that does represent an, an unfortunate animosity that we see sometimes, um, I think that anything that makes the world better and a more accepting place for any autistic person, regardless of age or ability, is going to make the world a better place for my son. Thanks so much, Krista. This is Jen. Um, 
I love that you said ability is a fluid thing because I think that that also plays into a lot of the um, high-functioning, low-functioning talk that we hear a lot. I know my son has variable skills, and depending on the day and everything else that's going on, uh, those abilities change. That's so true. Um, I, I was just reflecting or, with um, with my husband that he was in the classroom one day when my son had a field trip, and in the classroom in the structured environment, he was absolutely at ease and following routines and doing great, and then they went on the field trip, and it was a very different kit outside yeah. of that structured routine. So, yeah, it's 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 very up and down. Um, now, Cassianne, in that same uh, – yeah, me. I did it wrong. Cassiana, in that same New York Times article, Zoe Gross talked about how, uh, how hard it is, how taxing it is to mask one's autism on a daily basis. Is that something you experience, or and what's your approach to that? Um, when I really, really have to pass, it is like the most exhausting thing in the world. Um, I can tell you now, I'm a weird kid. <laughs> I I wear earplugs to class. Um, if a teacher has a problem with it, that's their problem. I wear blue glasses. I stim in public because I'm a grown-up now. I don't care. Um, but if I have to pass, it's like really, really exhausting, and then I have to go home and just hang out under a blanket for hours and hang out with my cat. Uh, wait, can you explain why do you wear the blue glasses? How does that help you? Um, well, I have photosensitive epilepsy, and also, okay. do you like do you know what scotoma are with, uh-huh. like, the, like, floaters on steroids? Right. Um, if I look at something white without my blue glasses, I've got these rainbow-colored uh, floaters on steroids, and they're very, very pretty. However, they are very, very distracting as well, and they're Imagine. gorgeous. But filtering them out is just not some is one more layer of stuff to do that I just don't need. When I'm also translating thoughts into words, and then words back into thoughts, and then figuring out what did they mean when they said that, because it was possibly the opposite. And there's just so many cognitive processes going on um, that filtering out the sensory stuff that I can is very helpful. So, uh, you know, Krista was talking about her son and how um, in the structured environment he did very well. Do you find Mm -hmm. yourself seeking those kind of structured environments where you can have an expectation of what's going to happen next? Or are you, because you are older and you've had more time to sort of figure out how you are and how you interact with the world, are you able to be in more unstructured environments on a more regular basis? Um, You can set a clock by how I run my gymnastics classes. I'm a little bit of a structure freak. Um, there are some situations in which I can be um, fairly spontaneous because there are situations where it is structured that I will be spontaneous, if that made any sense. <laughs> uh, actually, I, that makes perfect sense to me. People sometimes think that my husband and I are spontaneous because we will pack up the kids and drive halfway across the state to a national park. But in truth, it's because we prepare for so many different events we're not spontaneous. We're just picking up one of our ready-to-go, like our go bag sort of for, for that part of our life. So that does make sense to me. Okay. Well, this is Shannon again, and that's I really appreciate hearing a lot about what you have to say about how you're experiencing the world, uh, Cassiana, and having to filter out various input sources because that really, really helps me understand um, – how things are for my son because you know he's not much for conversation and the way that I get information about what the world might be like for him is by talking to people like you and other autistics. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, I wanted to then ask Carol and Emily have both written and talked a lot recently in uh, areas like Parents.com and on our own site, ThinkingAutismGuide.com, where we're having a series of posts called Slice of Life where we're profiling uh, different autistic people of all ages and abilities. Uh, We're we're now actually uh, posting multiple profiles per day, and Carol and Emily were kind enough to let us feature them, and you both talked about how you and your sons really get each other, how you have shared autistic traits that bring kind of a special dynamic to your parenting and relationship to your children. So I was wondering if first Carol and then Emily could talk about that a little bit. Um, This is Carol. And uh, I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, it really struck a note with me um, when Kasayana, um talked about masking and, and how difficult and how draining that is because I received a later-in-life diagnosis. I'm, I'm about to turn 49, and I was only diagnosed when I was 44. 
So uh, I've spent my life masking. And now, just in the past year, I'm just beginning to learn how to not mask. Um, And it's very, very difficult. I feel very, very uncomfortable when I I let my autism show. I'm an absolute expert masker. Um, I'm exhausted at the end of the day, just like Kaseyana said, but I am an expert at it. I've been practicing it a long time, and I, I... to, there are certain situations in which I really do need to let the mask down. And that affects my parenting because I want to be sure I'm teaching my son the right things. I'm, I want to be sure I'm teaching him things that will improve his quality of life. Unlike me, he was diagnosed at three and a half and has received all kinds of intervention, which I never received. So in that in that area... He's um, he's way ahead of me in some ways. But he also, you know, there are some things that he, he needs to conform to, and then there are other things he doesn't need to conform to. And it's very hard for me, because I'm autistic too, to tell when uh, I should demand that he conform and when I shouldn't. Um, so that, that just struck me. But um, I would say that overall, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot since I got my diagnosis um, a couple of years after my son's diagnosis, is that a lot of things that worry me, and I'm a parent and it's my job to worry, so of course I'm going to worry. A lot of things that worry me I find a little more manageable because I see the same things, I see the exact same, some of the exact same stims in my son that I had myself which is really intriguing to me because my son is is minimally verbal and I obviously, I I never had a language delay. I've always spoken um, very fluently. So it's very interesting to see that somebody on such, two people related um, so closely on such different parts of the spectrum can have so many similarities. And... um, when I see him doing a stim that I used to do at his age or maybe a little younger, I don't tend to worry about it as much as, say, my husband, who is not diagnosed as autistic, um, who, you know, every every new thing, he's like, is this something we should worry about or not? And I kept telling him recently, um, there was this one one stim that, that our son was doing, and he was a little bit concerned, and I, and I said, I, I really, I wasn't concerned about that because I remember doing that. I did the exact same thing. It was a vocal stim. Most of our mutual stims are vocal stims. And he started talking <laughs> in an unusual way, and uh, the speech therapist explained that it was his way of processing language. And I said, yeah, that sounds about right. That's probably, that sounds like um, the reason that I did it too, even though I wasn't conscious of it at the time. So um, seeing him do that stuff that I used to do makes me think, okay, well, it passed for me. It'll pass for him. Um, this stuff is very fluid. And autistic people are like anybody else in the sense that we all grow and develop and change. Um, and Lies. What? <laughs> Sorry, I was being sarcastic. Lies. <laughs> Lies. Oh, yes, we're not like any anything like anybody else. I'm sorry. <laughs> take it back, withdrawn. Carol, this is Jen. I have a question for you that sometimes I, I have to explain to therapists that my son is our son first. He is more like our family than he is like any other person who's autistic. So do you see some of those um, some of those stims or some of his behavior as like you or because of autism, does that is that? Is I think it they're because of discern? autism. Okay. okay, I really just, think they're because of autism, curious. and here's why: uh, the particular stims I'm talking about, I don't do them anymore. Okay. I haven't seen hide nor hair of these particular stims since I was about his age. Interesting. These are particular vocal stims, like singing the same song over and over again, or like making noises by. Um, inhaling through my vocal cords instead of exhaling through my vocal cords or talking in a particular type of monotone. I haven't done that since I was his age. And not to get too personal, but can I ask if there's a, when you hear him do some of those things 
and you're reminded that you used to do them as a child, he is now growing up in a supportive environment within your home with a diagnosis, sort of with more room and space to be who he is possibly. Did you have a similar experience, or do you feel like he's going to have a it, it will be dramatically different for him because he had that diagnosis earlier? Oh, I think it's dramatically different for him. I really do. And that's not, you know, that's not to say that I have any animus um, against my parents about that. I mean, they didn't know. No one knew the diagnosis of Asperger's, which is the diagnosis I have, um, and not the diagnosis of autism that my son has. It's not the same, quite the same kind of autism. Um, my diagnosis was not existent when I was a child. Right. My parents uh, couldn't have known. So whatever they did or didn't do, they were doing their best. And um, they did a pretty good job, I think. Um, I, however, am armed with more knowledge simply because I was born later and my son was born later. If you're going to be born with autism, this is the time to be born. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, this is a world that is much more... I know there are a lot of problems still, and there's a lot of ableism out there, but this is the this is just a glorious time compared to when I was um, a, a an autistic child. His being autistic as a child is is a lot. Um, there's a lot more understanding surrounding it. Well, thank you so much, Carol. Um, and that's really just it's amazing to hear these varied experiences again because it just helps me understand not only, again, how different experiences are among, you know, between my son and your son, but, again, how things have been for people who might not have been diagnosed until later or might even still not be formally diagnosed. So uh, along those lines, I'd like to transition to Emily, who recently talked on Thinking Persons Guide to Autism, how she considers herself to be, you know, part of the Asperger's women's community, and uh, uh, specifically with great feeling about the really lovely dynamic that she and her son share. So, Emily, I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Um, can, can you hear me okay? Emily, are you there? Can you hear me okay? I'm hearing somebody's lovely little child, but I am that's not. That's not it. I'm not hearing Emily. Um. That's all. Oh, that's really too bad. Uh, well, I guess. Hello? Hmm. Okay. So I've just been sitting in the queue this whole time, and no one can hear me. Emily is talking in a mouse voice, and no one can hear her. This is a problem. Emily, I'm horribly sorry. I think that um, I'm hoping Chuck is listening and that he could maybe work with you on figuring out what's going on. Okay. Um, I'm just, <laughs> sorry, sweetheart. We're going to... We're going to go ahead and, and just talk about the next thing. I just again, I wanted to thank Carol and all, all of our autistic guests for again these insights because I've just learned so much from self-advocates of all abilities, not just the ones who are able to communicate by speaking, but communicate by typing and by various ways. And they really helped me understand my son so much better. Um, I, I just even recently, you know, I, I, we were lucky enough to uh, take a trip to the Cal Academy with a couple of our friends, uh, Zoe Gross, who we talked about before, and Julia Baxham. And, you know, I don't think my son has ever been so beautifully and naturally supported in a great, big, overwhelming public environment. The fact that he wanted to run around in circles, you know, they were just saying, oh, that looks so soothing, and oh, he must be so happy, as opposed to just backing <laughs> away and yeah. treating him like the the weird kid. It, it was just absolutely wonderful. And another example was um, he had a real problem a couple of weeks ago where he couldn't stop picking at the skin underneath his nose because he had a he had a bloody nose, and then he kept picking at it, and it, it was a scab that he had for three weeks. It wouldn't go away. And another person that we were with um, said that, oh, well, that yeah, of course he's doing that. You know, it's amazing that meeting me today that I don't have a sore on my face. That's something I absolutely love picking at my skin. And so he gave me a bunch of, you know, approaches that we could try. Things that she does, like she put, she'll put scotch tape on her arms, or she'll put Elmer's glue and spread it out on her arm and let it dry, and then pick that off so that she'll get the same kind of reinforcement from that. And oh, that's such a good idea. I know, and I'm thinking the like, Didn't you guys do that in grade school? 
I, I think I said I did. This is Krista. I, I'm just remembering that I did that. and uh, I used to put it on my fingers, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was just so grateful because I would not have come up with that on my own or probably not from, you know, at school with his support staff. is lovely, but they said, well, let's try wearing gloves. And, you know, that, that beat me. Let's, let, let's put something in his hands. And, you know, no, I'm was, talking in here, Marshall, not to you. So, uh, oh, there's Emily. There. Emily, I think we can hear you now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, the third interface I tried to dial in. So, um, Emily, so I'm so glad you're here and that we can um, ask you the question. I don't know if you heard what we wanted to ask you about, about just your this lovely dynamic that you have with your, uh, your 10-year-old son, T.H., and we were wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, that that would be fine. I'm kind of irritable and cranky at this point, so I hope he's not picking up on that. He does tend to pick up on all of my moods. Um, what I was going to say about it is that I think it's been useful because I've already gone through 40 years of learning social algorithms and how these things, how how um, people interact, kind of watching them and taking notes and trying to integrate them into my own behaviors. And because he and I are so similar in a lot of ways that helps me sort of instinctively know what might work for him or ways that might help him understand how to integrate his own behaviors. And the only other thing I was going to say, because I don't want to take up too much time since we've already moved on, is that I've uh, spent also those 40 years working to get down to sort of an understanding of the core of who I am and what I am and accepting that as completely as I think I possibly can. I'm, not that I don't have work to do or anything, but I'm just really comfortable with who I am. And because I've already achieved that level of acceptance after years of not living a very happy existence, that helped me to just pretty much immediately recognize, understand, and accept who my son was. I had no trouble at all with any of that. It was just instinctive to me from the very beginning. that. I really appreciate hearing from you on that. And I hope that we all, you know, I'm, I'm fairly myself, I would say now at 40, I think I'm 42. I can never remember how old I am. <laughs> I, just don't, I just don't care anymore, you know. There's, exactly. I've got yeah. things to do and people to take care of and people to adore, like I think pretty much everybody on this call. So, um, you know, it's just not an issue. So thank you, you know, for, for spreading that message. I think um, this is Jen. Shannon, I think um, what Emily said and what you just said makes such sense to me. I realize that one of the things that has been so dramatic for me in the last two years um, with Jack, I never had a transition. I never felt like I lost my child. I never felt like poor me or any of those, uh, any of those negative, uh, the negative communication that is sometimes about being a parent of a child with autism. I, that, none of that happened for me. But I know that... What's happened in the last couple of years is I've had more interaction with older adult with o- older autistics is that I always presume that Jack, who is nonverbal, understands the world around him and understands me when I communicate with him. But I think that increased interaction with adults with autism has made me insist upon other people uh, presuming his competence and that's a difference that I didn't know that I needed to make and I didn't I, I think it's a confidence that has come in in accepting myself and our family and my son but, but understanding that uh, that it's not just my responsibility to presume his competence but I need to demand that of the world around him and I think that's one of the most dramatic things that that we've encountered uh, with an with an exposure to a, a larger part of the spectrum in both age and ability. That's amazing. I really, really appreciate this. Really Shannon. Appreciate this is Shannon. Shannon. Um, I'm hearing a little bit of an echo. I'm not sure if other people. Yeah, Emily. I think we're hearing an echo from you again. I'm so sorry. You know what? I'm going to go now. Um, It's been nice talking to everybody, and I will talk to you all later. The only other thing I wanted to say is I had something coming up. I just wanted to say that one thing that people don't seem to talk about so much is the grimacing aspects, uh, the faces that, for example, my son makes that get misconstrued fairly consistently. And so if somebody would like to address that, that would be great. Yeah, 
sure, Emily, that's fine. You were kind enough to actually put that, write that down. So, I do my best. Um, I'll listen to the rest. Talk to you all later. All right. Thanks, Emily. So, um, this is Shannon. I'd, I'd really be interested in hearing more from everybody about what you'd really like people to understand about your autism or your child's autism. So, uh, Krista, would you be willing to go first? Sure. Um, I think what I'd like everyone to know about my son, and, and a couple of you who have met him know this, is that he's just a really joyful, funny kid. Um, he's really creative, and we just have a lot of fun at our house. And um, I think that's what I would want people to know about him and our family. Um, I certainly don't want him defined by his challenges, um, but I do want people to recognize that that his needs for support are real and, and they're valid and they're really critical for his success. Um, he um, He's just great and a lot of fun and really getting into the Lord of the Rings right now, and I'm really happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's just fantastic. And uh, and Ben and my my daughter India, this is Shannon again, are are good friends. So that gives them something that they can talk about Balrogs and such. That's fantastic. Yeah. They're, I'm they're feeling like I might need to reread the books at this point so I can keep up with all of my my friends' children. Yeah. <laughs> now, see, if you were autistic, you would have memorized them. I know, I know, and I don't read Star Trek either. <laughs> if you were really, really autistic, you'd go to the premiere in an elf dress. Well, oh, yeah. Damn. I think I've got more of a hobbit physique, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hobbits are cool. I mean, I've got the furry feet and everything, man. <laughs> so, uh, Cassiana, maybe you can, um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more. I, I love that, uh, that you went to the opening in a hobbit dress. That's fantastic. Is there anything else that you'd want to, that you'd want to share about your autism? Well, it was an elf dress, actually. I still have it. But, um, well, first, Okay, I can do calculus. I'm really freaking good at calculus. I also can't cook without setting my kitchen on fire. Wow. These these are vastly different skill sets, and people like don't comprehend that being able to do thing A and being able to do thing G are not like remotely related. Um, I'm really really silly. You know that whole humorous humorless autistic stereotype. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I and my diagnosis is unassailable. Um, autistic people are silly. Um, some of the things I do to cope with the world, people think are me being rude. But I promise you, if I am being rude, you will know. There's like no, there's no there's denying no it. There's, there's clueless. There's taking care of myself, and then there's hi. I don't like you. I'm being rude now. These are very discrete categories. And I think that people really need to be a bit kinder about the ways that people who are processing much, much more because we take in much, much more and are running different operating systems, people need to be much kinder about how we apparently appear because we're not even doing anything, like, harmful or bad or even that obnoxious and people, like, throw their hissy fit about it and that's ridiculous. I'd rather just have jokes. Yeah, I wish it were like that, too. I, I get yelled at on average uh, less often than I used to. It used to be every single day, several times a day. Now, you know, the better, the older I've gotten and the more I've, more experiences I've had, and, and because I'm autistic, I'm very good at pattern recognition, which a lot of us are. Um, I recognize the patterns that in this situation you say this and not that, or you'll have a, a response that you won't like. Um, but... Yes. Yeah, masking, um, you know, when you learn to mask better, one of the advantages is you get to make choices. Um, Wait, I have a joke that I can breathe in an inflammatory manner because people get mad at me for, like, literally everything I do. It's it's kind of ridiculous, so I choose to make it funny. <laughs> yeah, I, breathe in I know an what you mean. <laughs> um, I know what you mean. You know, I want to make sure, this is Jen, um, because Emily had to go because of technical difficulties, um, she was talking a little bit about TH and the grimacing, and I'm going to read. A, I'm going to kind of paraphrase what she's left for me in notes here. And uh, she says, "Children and adults have always received the grimacing in the wrong way." She says, "I think we tend to overread and overinterpret facial expressions as having greater meanings or more specific meanings than they really have, or perhaps as they were intended." 
Grimacing isn't something I see people discuss a lot with autism, but for my, for my son, it's expressing something very different from the way most people seem to perceive it. Along the same lines, I'll always appreciate it, as will my son, I'm pretty sure, if people just say what they're feeling instead of using facial expressions to communicate it or worse, to disguise it. And I think that goes along with the whole concept of masking, actually, very particularly, and also um, trying to read some of those patterns. I think that uh, when we're trying to, I know now that I'm a grown-up, I'm trying to believe what people say. In je forget autism, I'm trying to understand what people say and try and take them at their word and to clarify. And if I'm angry with someone, I try and say, I'm angry with you so that they don't have to guess because the world is a lot more simple when we're just direct with each other. So I think for TH, that would be a very helpful thing is to not use subtle facial expressions to try and communicate major ideas. Well, I, I'm not sure that neurotypical people can help it, just as, as uh, a lot of autistic people can help not reading those expressions. I mean, body language is part of the way that most people communicate. And in that sense, you know, I'm always saying um, we're not sick, we're not broken, we're neurologically outnumbered. In that sense, we are <laughs> neurologically outnumbered. I mean, most people... Um, People who are not autistic can read the subtle facial expressions, and I can't, and my son can't. And it would be nice if people were more understanding of that, but um, the reality is most people are not, and so we have to meet each other halfway somehow. I need to be able to say what I need. Kasiana is really, it sounds like she, um, you're really good at compensating, you know, finding your own ways of compensating for difficulties and not caring what people think about it, and that's terrific. Um, I think there needs to be a lot more of that. I think there needs to be a lot of autistic people going beyond their fears of getting yelled at and saying, here's what I need to be able to participate in this conversation. Um, let me ask you, it looks like you feel angry. Is that the case? Um, I, I'm, I'm afraid I don't read faces very well. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to explicate that expression, that facial expression. Um, on you know what goes over really well in that situation? What? I love that face. What does it mean? <laughs> I have one with my husband where I say your angry face and your confused face look exactly the same to me that is really causing a lot of problems I think we're fighting when in fact you're just trying to ask me what I just said uh, Carol this is Jen I have an idea we, why don't we just ask people if you were an emoticon right now which one would it be <laughs> that's great oh my god well it's a good thing Emily's not on because she would she's not a fan of emoticons I, I know she's not <laughs> actually it's kind of interesting that we're having this you know the the facial expressions and the subtleties and because my son is nonverbal for the most part unless he slips out a bad word or a very very clear no or yeehaw for yes uh it's important for me to read all of his subtle cues because his saying yes quite often is just a squint of the eye. And a big hello from him might be grazing your arm. So in our case, Jack's uh, very big, meaningful content comes in very small micro expressions. And if we, not, if we don't pay attention to those, I guess in this case he's, he's lucky that he is around people who are mostly neurotypical in our family. Well, that's a questionable thing, but for the most part, we can we <laughs> can read those social cues. Yeah. Sometimes, this is Krista, sometimes I wonder about my son, and, and he seems to pick up on emotional cues and facial expressions almost more than the typical person, mm. almost like a like an enhanced sensitivity. That I think is interesting. If I um, if I uh, drop something or spill something and and I sort of have a little oh in the other room, he'll he'll say what happened, and he'll he'll pick up on these on a little quiet gasp of mine in the other. Can room. I can I speak to that issue for a minute? Yeah, because um, I can I I think I have some explanation for that. The thing is, we can read macro expressions. We can read when somebody is just we can we can basically get the general idea if somebody is really upset or if they're laughing hysterically, we get the idea that they they think something's funny. It's the micro expressions that we have difficulty with. 
So we have all these sensory issues, and we're constantly trying to process um, all kinds of expressions, and we're doing a lot of guesswork. So sometimes we'll see, we'll we'll hear um, something drop in the other room, and we'll think, "Oh no, it must be a disaster," because we what we can see, you know, that in in our experience, when something drops, it usually means. I broke it and someone's going to yell at me. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we we can't see the differences in the micro-expressions, so we assume everything is a disaster mm. or everything is hysterically funny. Um, that's one of the reasons that I can't work funny. in an office environment because I'll hear a coworker complaining and I'll think, oh, my God, did her best friend just die or did she break a nail? Okay. <laughs> You know, it really, and, and and so that may be what your son is going through. It's not so much that he can read the expressions, it's that he gets a sense of something's not quite right, but he doesn't, he can't measure how not right it is. Right, right, right. It's, and so that's good. why he's he he may seem to be overreacting, but if it were the case that, that something awful was happening, you would want him to react appropriately by saying, "Oh my God, what's wrong?" Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we err. We tend to err on the side of overreact. What looks like an overreaction. Yeah. I and I and I think he does. He does tend to pick up on. Um, does tend to pick up on our emotions, even when we're not expressing them very much. Oh, and yeah. I wonder. And I wonder what the mechanism is for that. He really seems to be perceptive of that unspoken stuff too. I, I think I think it's the same thing as um information processing. I think we process it generally at a different rate, but we process more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um we're capable of processing emotion just as capable as anybody else, but we process it perhaps slower and more deeply. Yeah. This is Jen, I, I just have to say again, this is just another perfect example of of um as a parent of a child with autism, and I don't have autism, to be able to learn from from those who have gone before me and from autistic adults, it it is such a remarkable thing. And I I just hope that more parents of young children can can attach to some of this. And I know that's one of our biggest goals at Thinking Person's Guide to Autism is to bring these communities together because it has been so meaningful for me. And I feel like this way I can stop, I think often people think of autism as a childhood issue, and then there are those adults with autism, and there's this transition period, and Jack is now closer to being an adult than he is a child, and to know that this is a continuing thing where his abilities will change, but his diagnosis will remain the same, and to be able to learn from all of you, and uh, it's just very, it makes me a little bit clumped. I really, I really appreciate it very much. Yeah, I do too. I was going to ask if I could do this every week. <laughs> it's been great. Well, hopefully Marianne's listening and uh she'll she'll think about that. Um <laughs> this is Shannon again and I I just wanted to uh, you know again echo what what Jen said. I mean, this is when I see uh you know parents railing against adults autistics, I I mean it really just breaks my heart because there's so much that autistic people have in common and it's really something that I think until you have these kinds of discussions and you see people having these kinds of discussions it's kind of hard to get that across so I really truly hope that this kind of sets the tone for more discussions like these in public as frequently as possible Uh, but I'd also again I'd like uh, people to know a little bit about Leo and what autism means for him my son who's 11 years old and there's definitely a lot of what what Jen said about about Leo is is a subtle kid like Jen's son Jack. I mean, you know, you definitely know he's there. He's loud. He's exuberant. But in terms of understanding how his mind works, you have to be really observant. And you know, if you focus only on the obvious things, on the fact that he doesn't talk much, on the fact that he gets easily frustrated or he's obsessed with foods. So you miss all these little things, how sly he is, how smart he is, and these actions that reveal not just his capability but his potential. You know, just the fact that you could watch him, he can slip on both of his shoes at the same time. That's a pretty intense bilateral coordination. I don't think I could do that, right? That's serious motor planning. Um, the way he can twiddle things in with 
three different things with two hands and toes at the same time. <laughs> or, I mean, I, I can't do that. You know, the way that I'm hyperventilating here because motor planning is my hardest, my hardest thing. And my son, because he's having intervention, who had trouble with it in the past, mm-hmm. is no longer not only no longer having trouble with it, but is becoming an expert at motor planning. Yeah. Um, and and that. And, you know, I hear about things that require motor planning. It's like, I could never do that in a million years. And my son can do it and more. But luckily, my son is a really, really sweet kid, and he wants to help as much as he receives help. So he's been doing interventions with me, completely unprompted. He'll come into my room, and he will put my shoes in front of me, and he will ask me, he will make me put them on with as little language as possible because he doesn't, he speaks a little but not much. And if I put the wrong shoe on the wrong foot, he'll say no left or no right. He's really trying to teach me exactly the way he was taught at school because he can see that I'm in trouble. That's precious. That's just wonderful. Um, I think, again, I I, I think having these open discussions is Critical. We, we need to do this more often. Um, but one of the things that comes into these arenas is the fact that you know a lot of parents come from outside of the disability community, and so uh, have a problem with with what is the term is with ableism, with not understanding what it's like to be a disabled person, and with dismissing that. So I was wondering if if Cassiana could talk a little bit about ableism and and what that term means and how folks can watch out for it and avoid making kind of noob ableist errors. I am all over this. Um, So ableism, you know, people don't know what it is, which is kind of ridiculous. Everybody knows what racism is, right? Yeah. And sexism. Mm -hmm. So you would think people could extrapolate from that that ableism is judging a person's worth based on their disability or ability status. But people don't even know what that is, and so that's what it is. It's judging somebody as less than because they have a disability. And um, one of the, like, a lot of what you see is what's called microaggressions, where people aren't trying to be oppressive jerks, but they're, you know, they're throwing around ableist slurs, they're rolling their eyes at the person using a mobility aid, mm-hmm. they're, um, da da they refuse to turn off their flash photography, even though the room is plenty bright and you can cause somebody to have a very serious seizure, just like lots of little things um, that people do on a daily basis. It's not just the big things, and that's like where people get caught up. They're like, well, if I'm not, you know, tipping over wheelchairs or clapping <laughs> in an autistic person's ears, I'm not ableist. It's like, no, you are totally ableist just by thinking you can say you're not ableist because I guarantee you everybody has, you know, a little bit of internalized crap. Because I know I have I a bunch of internalized I don't use a wheelchair, crap. but I really wish they would turn down the music in some of these stores. And when exactly. I ask, I get all kinds of looks and all kinds of crap. Well, yeah, no, people are awful, and they're worse if they can't see it. Like, they're condescending when they think that there's somebody's got a difference, but they're like when they can tell, but when they can't, they're just mean. I mean, I've had people yeah. talk to my friend and I. We go rock climbing and stuff, and like I said, I'm a weird kid. And I've had people talk to him about me, and he's just like, um, so she's smarter than me. Maybe you should talk to her about this. And, like, things that people can look out for is that. Talk to the person. Don't don't talk about the person when they're there. That's rude. Um, mm-hmm. Watch your language. And if you're going to say something, really think about if you'd want somebody talking about, like, you know, we're all women here, right? It, you know, you wouldn't say this person suffers from femaleness. So why would you say <laughs> that this person suffers from autism? That's not, no, you don't, you get, don't get to declare other people's experiences for them and to think that you can like for example with the suffering example is really the height of what all of the oppressive isms is is to assume that you know better than this group of people because you are better than them or whatever and that's just not right you know i think Cassiana, i think this is jen i think some people need to um i my concern is when people try are trying and we 
and they don't use the right language. I know even with my own family, who is wonderful and supportive, we've had to change the language because they just didn't have, in their environment, they didn't even have that dictionary. It didn't exist for them. And so trying to give them new language to use. And do you feel like there's, there's space for that, or is it because, or is it so, is it so um, offensive that we can't even? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not quite making sense, but I, I just I get frustrated because I want to teach people, and I feel like we're sometimes I'm just angry instead. Well, some people are teachable, and some people really aren't. Like I'm in the age demographic where a lot of people have the R word as their really cool, edgy slur. And right. if you get one, try with me with that. You say it, I will say, please don't say that. That's offensive and ableist, and I won't spend time with people who indicate that they think that I'm less than. After that, you're pretty much out of out of shot, especially like this one girl. She got She's getting some kind of fancy graduate degree in two months, and she won't stop using the word. And it's like, okay, I know you have a big vocabulary, so you're not educable. But then there's people who are like, oh, my bad. And they, like, really, really try to do things right. And so, you know, there, there are people who try. Once again, it's pattern recognition. Um, you you get it when somebody's trying and somebody is obviously trying, and you get it when somebody obviously doesn't have a good, a willing spirit to try. Mm-hmm. And if somebody doesn't have a willing spirit, I'm not going to waste my time on them because I don't have time. Um, ding, I'm ding, a mother. Ding. Even if it, even if my child weren't autistic, I'm a mother. I don't have time. I'm a woman, so I'm expected to take care of everybody and do everything. Even if I didn't have a child at all, I wouldn't have time. Uh, I don't have time for that. So when I think that when when I recognize a pattern of willingness to change, I'm I'm willing to go as far as that person is, or farther. But when I see an, an, an absolute unwillingness to change and when it's clear that I am expected to conform to whatever their expectations are, um, I have no time for that. Well, this yeah. is Shannon. I have a question and for Cassiana and, and uh, Carol both. One thing I've noticed being a member of the autism parenting communities is that there are a lot of parents of children with autism who are shall we say, rigid thinkers themselves. And oh, so true. <laughs> of course. Oh, it's it's so ridiculous. And they're always the ones accusing me of having black and white thinking. And I'm just like, <laughs> I don't understand. When you so, think about some of the treatment modalities, too, and I'm not I'm not saying one in, one or, or another in particular, but um, but if you if if you are trying to get a rigid thinker to um, respond in a social appropriate way, you're trying to get a rigid thinker to teach them social skills, for example, then doing role plays where they have to say thank you very much to the storekeeper, to the person playing the role of the storekeeper every single time, that's not going to help them become more fluid. That's a very rigid teaching pattern. So I, I just can't get over how rigid supposedly neurotypical people are. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? And it's always they're always listening black and white thinkers and they're saying that I can't that what I say doesn't matter because I can type or something and it's like that's a really rigid and silly arbitrary dividing line. But okay. Yeah. Let me go play with my crayons. So um, yeah. <laughs> um Thinking Person's Guide to Autism is trying to bring some of those stereotypes to a crashing halt, I hope. Uh, and as we are are out there on the Internet or in the world, I wonder if you guys could each give me an example or talk a little bit about what are some of the resources that you think are considered essential to understanding autism as a spectrum and, and, uh, and different other places to learn online other than Thinking Person's Guide to Autism, of course. Cassiana, do you, want, do you have any? Uh, Autism Self-Advocacy Network. Um, Hey, San? In particular, their Loud Hands project is going to be totally awesome, and I'm not just saying that because their video made me really happy. Um, (laughs) There's also a lot of blogs written by autistic people, and you used to have to really look for them, but not so much anymore, and there's some real gold out there when you find something written by autistic people. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Carol, do you have any suggestions? 
Yes, I do. It's going to sound like a joke, but it really isn't. Um, I was a science fiction editor. And one of the best places to meet quirky people is a science fiction convention or a science fiction forum of some kind, if you're into that sort of thing. Or even a um, a skeptics um, organization or an organization where people are are interested in futurism and interested in, in critical thinking. Um, you can find a lot of quirky people, maybe on the spectrum, maybe off the spectrum. But certainly as a former science fiction editor... I was really in my comfort zone when I was um, speaking at a science fiction convention. I was geeking out with everybody else. I didn't seem particularly odd. As a matter of fact, I actually seem more more uh, closer to the neurotypical <laughs> edge of the uh, of the arena when I'm in a science fiction heavy environment. But um, you know, people who who have passions for things. Uh, understand passion. And autistic people, despite the stereotype that we are passionless and robotic, actually have a very deep understanding of passion and um, actually think that, uh, at least I I can only speak for myself, but I think that there's um, sometimes a lack of passion in so-called normal thinking. We're, because we're so capable of hyper-focus on our particular special interests, um, seeking out groups where there are people who are really so-called obsessed with uh, a particular thing, uh, that's you're going to find a lot of quirky people and you're going to find a lot of companionship. So it's not one source online in particular. It's just, you know, um, if you have a hobby that you really love, really pursue it. Yeah, right. Real life is okay. Um, I do want to speak for um, uh, Emily real quick. She, her, uh, one of her great resources is Twitter, because she can see autistic people from all parts of the spectrum, and it also is only verbal communication, which is the most useful form of interaction for her. So I wanted to put that one out as. Um, this is Shannon. Really quickly, I wanted to uh, just address what Carol said about the, uh, you know, obsessive uh, c- component of autism, and I, I just wanted to encourage people to check out Julia Bascom's essay, "The Obsessive Joy of Autism," which you can find at Shift Journal, and I think that's just an absolutely critical reading for anybody interested in autism. Um, but I agreed. Yeah, we have about three minutes left on the broadcast, and so just in case, I want to again thank Meyer Johnson for supporting the Coffee Clutch and want to say really quickly that uh, the reason that the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism exists is because we could not find a one-stop, evidence-based, compassionate, expert nexus for autistics parents and professionals. And we have an extensive an extensive resource page on our site, thinkingautismguide.com. We also have a vibrant uh, Facebook community. So if you go on to our site, thinkingautismguide.com, and click on the Facebook icon, we're on Twitter at Thinking Autism, and you can ask us questions at any time at thinkingautism at gmail.com. So I just wanted to get that out there and make sure that we um, make sure we cover everybody else's favorite resources. We've got two minutes. <laughs> uh, Krista, do you have uh, any suggestions? I'll go fast. Um, for parents with school-aged children that um, uh, are, are sort of in the twice-exceptional Side, Bright Not Broken by Diane Kennedy, Rebecca Banks, and contributor mm-hmm. Temple Grandin. Great for mm-hmm. navigating the school system if you have kids that have that have um, strengths and weaknesses that are sort of far apart. Dude, I'm an Aspie, a great webcomic um, by Matt Friedman, which mm-hmm. also um, blows apart the myth that um, people on the spectrum have no sense of humor. And NBC's Community, which has my favorite yes. pop culture yes. representation of an Aspie um, Danny Pudi's portrayal of Abed is compassionate and funny and complicated and really tender-hearted. So I love that. And Krista, I love Abed. Krista, can you tell us your uh, Twitter handle real quick? Hyperlexicon. Great. So you can follow her at hyperlexicon, twitter.com slash hyperlexicon. And uh, Cassiana, your Twitter handle? UVG Cassie, K-A-S-S-I. And Carol? I am Aspie Advocate. And Shannon? I'm Shannon Rosa, all one word. And I'm Jenny Alice. And then, uh, again, we can find uh, you can find us at twitter.com slash thinkingautism. And uh, if you find us on Facebook, the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism, uh, you would uh, 
we often answer questions right on our Facebook page so that other people can benefit from the answers as well. Oh, and Emily is uh, EJ Willingham on Twitter. Oh, yes. And so um, I think that's all we've got time for, but I think we need to do this again, don't you? So, yeah, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So thank you so much, everybody, for participating in this cross-disability autism chat, and we will hopefully talk again another time. Thank so, you. Um, we've, thank uh, you. I think we've Thank you. Bye. Yeah. So I think we've now stopped recording. Um, so, I, again, I want to thank everybody from the bottom of my heart for participating in this chat. I, I,